You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Mubi. If you've uh, ever been sitting trying to pick something to watch, you might have noticed that algorithms don't get great storytelling. And generally, uh, scanning through a gazillion movies and whatever streaming app isn't the best way to pick. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. There's a new one every day and you have a month to watch it. So it's not infinite selection. It's more like a film festival or like great neighborhood uh, boutique theaters that used to exist. So whether you're looking for a timeless classic, a thought-provoking documentary, or a groundbreaking masterpiece, I encourage you to check them out. They are at Mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com. And if you go to Mubi.com slash longform, you'll get a 30-day free trial. Again, Mubi, M-U-B-I.com slash longform. Thank you, Mubi. Also sponsoring the show this week, it's Findaway Voices. If you've written a book and you'd like to reach a wider audience with audio, yeah, hey-o, audio, uh, you can use Findaway Voices to create your own audiobook. They will match you with a narrator and manage the production. I have seen people trying to record their own book on tape. Don't do it. Go with the pros. It takes a very long time and it's hard. Uh, they will distribute your audiobook to 20 plus platforms, including Audible, Apple, Nook, TuneIn, and it's not exclusive and you always own the rights, so you can do whatever the hell you want with it. Findawayvoices.com slash longform gets you started today and they will waive the $49 distribution fee for our listeners. Again, that's findawayvoices.com slash longform. Thanks, Findaway Voices. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined here today by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey. Hey, you guys. Gentlemen. Everyone back after uh, trips, accidents, hospital visits. Hospital stays. I, I should uh, thank the, a lot of listeners. Sent me really nice notes. Yes. Uh, thank you, guys. And thanks to okay. all the listeners. I'm fine. I'm not blind. I, I was maybe going to be blind in my left eye for a second, and uh, now I'm not. If you had been, if you had lost your eye uh, while trying to fly to Chicago to do a long-form show live, would have that made you bitter towards the podcast? <laughs> I could never be bitter towards this podcast. I could also um, never be bitter towards Brian Reed because he stepped in for me at that live show and uh, and did it. Thanks, Brian. If you want, yeah. a little, want a little preview, you could listen to Max's conversation with Brian uh, from earlier this year. 
Brian Reed, of course, of S-Town. That guy's a minch. Who is on the show this week? This week is the other recent live show, which I did in San Francisco. Thank you, everyone who came out to that. It was Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher, if you don't know, is the executive editor, co-founder of Recode. She has a podcast called Recode Decode. She also orchestrates a big conference in uh, the tech world, which is called the Code Conference. She was a longtime writer for Wall Street Journal. She is basically the person who has most covered the tech industry for the longest time. Uh, she's the one one or two people that you would turn to for big scoops, uh, the biggest scoops about Silicon Valley. So had her on stage. She was amazing. She basically, she had the crowd eating out of her hand after about 10 seconds, as you will hear. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I hope it translates onto tape. Are we going to do, uh, do more of these live ones? Yeah, you guys in? I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I'm 0 for 1 Max, right now. <laughs> Max has to wear Horace Grant goggles from now on during the entire trip. Uh, but I think we, I think, I think the next one will be coming from me. Uh, so keep tuned for that. Uh, also keep tuned if you have an email box because all kinds of good MailChimp newsletters are probably coming to you. They are the easy, efficient way to maintain an email newsletter for your business, your project, what have you. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Evan with Kara Swisher. Get so I dressed for you. <laughs> also, even. the bar is open, and uh, I think the bar is open. Is the bar open? Yeah, keep yes. drinking. So uh, drinking. we're not delicate. So you got a lot to say. If you need one, get just go get it. No one's going to be offended. So I want to give some people some background and start sure. earlier in your career. And somewhat yeah. conveniently, just today, yeah. you tweeted, someone dug up the first, was it the first story you ever wrote or yeah. the first tech story you ever wrote for the Georgetown I think it was the tech Hoya? story. First, yeah, the Hoya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which was about tolls, fraudulent... Payphones. Payphone tolls. Yeah. So Riveting f- stuff. And the first sentence, there was misspelling in it, which drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> But, and then, of course, I got like six things from young, the youngins. They were like, what's a payphone? And I'm like, oh. Wow. Yeah. It's like an internet portal, except on the street. No, I actually, get... oddly enough, I was in Los Angeles when my kids were smaller. They're older now. And we walked past a payphone, a working payphone, which you don't see. Think about it. You don't, well, those who know what they are. Um, <laughs> and we walked past it, and my kids were like, what's that? And I'm like, it's a payphone. And they're like what do you do with it? I said, you pay and then phone. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? I go, well, you put money in and you didn't have your cell phone. No one had a cell phone. Like no one had a cell phone. And then you put money in and then you talk on it. And my young son, who just is just like, his name's Alex. And he goes, that's filthy. <laughs> anyway. My question was, yeah. Uh, when did you first sort of know you wanted to be a reporter? When did you catch reporter, the bug? The bug. Well, before I worked the Wall Street Journal, I uh, pre and and post Murdoch, by the way, I was at the Washington Post. I was a, I was a reporter at the Washington Post for years, and I actually was in college when I worked for the Hoya, uh, which was not the center of journalism, but I did pretty well there. And then I I was writing something about um, Roberto Dobuizon, I think it was, who was a killer in El Salvador. And they sent a post reporter. It was an event on campus. And the reporter was did a really bad job, like misspelled things and was wrong and the quotes were wrong. And so I thought it was a serious subject. And so I was really pissed because it was the Washington Post. 
And I love the Washington Post. I love Ben Bradley. So I got mad, and I called the Washington Post up and said, give me an editor, that kind of thing. And they put me in touch with the Metro editor, who was Larry Kramer, who later founded a bunch of stuff here. And he's like, what do you want? And I was like, you're terrible. Like, you did this, you reported a terrible job, blah, 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 blah. And I started going on and on with him, like, really annoyed. And he was sort of, it didn't occur to me, like, that they'd send their worst reporter to cover an event at Georgetown University. Like, that, they don't send it's their finest. It's not the prestige beat. No, exactly. I, just, I was like, but I was mad that they did a bad job. Like, it really pissed me off, because I thought it was important for readers and stuff like that. And so uh, he said, why don't you come down there and you're so obnoxious, say that to my face. I said, oh, I'll get on the bus. I'm going to come down there and say it to your face. And so I did. I did. I got to It was the D2 bus. It's still there. I just was on it the other day. And I get on it, and I go down, and it turns out he's the Metro editor, and they hired me to be a stringer. <laughs> I got a job. Did he hire you immediately, or did he say, uh, first, fuck you, second? No, he didn't say, fuck you. You don't say that back then. Now you do it. You know, he was super polite. Um, no, he just was, we ended up having, a, we've had a long, long relationship since then, but he was, of course, now he takes credit. He's like, I saw something in her that, and I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> he does that. Well, speaking of, so you also yeah. made a stop at the city paper. Anyway, I, I worked at the city paper, but anyway, I worked at a lot of places, but I worked for John McLaughlin, the TV show host. Yes. Issue one. And he was, let me just say, I know this is coming as a shock to all of you people in this day and age when we're so enlightened, but he was a sexual harasser. Um, and I testified against him in a trial. In yeah, a I read trial. about that. Yeah, and so um, when I was thinking, you're welcome, but it, did, it didn't matter. Um, so, um, but he, he, They settled? Well, yeah. So what happened is he sexually harassed someone. I saw it, and he was like the old-timey sexual harasser, a little chase around the desk, arms, like, give me a kiss, honey, that kind of sexual harasser. Ah, uh, oh, the old days. Um, so, so he... He was a pig. He was a pig. And so he, I'll tell a very brief story because it's so pertinent today when I hear all these stories. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's the same thing. And so he, he did it to her. I witnessed it. And then we went to the woman in the office who was running the office. And I was 22, 23 at the time and said, this is happening. And I'll never forget this because these enable, that Ronan Farrow enabler story really struck home. She goes, you must be lying to me and this woman. And the other woman was devastated. And I was like, fuck you. Like, we're not lying. And I quit, and she quit. You know, I was able to quit and get another job. But later, he did it to someone else, of course, because that's what these people do. And so they're, they're, they're like serial killers. They're just, they just go on and on and on. And so he did it to someone else, and then that, lo- that woman came to us. We were deposed. It was a terrible deposition. At the time, you know, I remember the lawyers, they were like, you're a lesbian, you hate men. I go, no, no, just that son of a bitch. Otherwise, <laughs> my brothers are nice, everyone's good. But it was, if I wasn't so obnoxious, it would have been very ter- terrifying. And so, um, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't at all. I didn't even bring a lawyer. I'm like, fuck you, like, what are you gonna do to me? Um, so, so anyway, so I, they settled she, for a million bucks, some, some enormous amount of money. And so they settled and then I was mad about that. I was like, it needs to go to trial. And so then the Washington Post came to me, a guy named Eric Alterman, who was a writer there. So I, he, he did a story, and so I wanted to give an interview about what happened, and he wanted to do a whole thing about what happened. And nobody would talk to him on the record. You know, it's the sources said, sources said. And he called me, and he goes, well, you can talk off the record. I said, off the record? I'll talk on the record about this, what happened. So I told him exactly what happened, and then... He uh, wrote it. My name was on it. Because I always thought, if your name's on it, your name has to... That's what changed with his Harvey Weinstein things. People's names were on it. And you couldn't deny, like, the same thing with Roy Moore, everything else. 
And so I saw him a while later at one of these parties, these awful Washington parties, and he said he, knew, he was an enormous, he's dead now, may he rest not in peace. And he, um, and he came up to me, he said, he's really a big guy, and he's like, Carol Swisher, uh, I just want to say, in a town where everybody stabs you in the back, you stab me in the front, thank you very much. Like, <laughs> and I, I literally, it was my best moment of my entire life. And he goes, and I go, anytime, you son of a bitch. And he was like, well, goodbye. And I said, well, goodbye. And I've never saw him again. And but did it there. have any impact? I mean, comparing... No. Yeah. No. no. Sort of looking at the, what's happening right now, and that, did it have any impact on his career? No. He had that show was, going for a year. I don't know, Exxon, whoever gave him the money. No, nothing. Yeah. Not a thing. He didn't pay the price. It, it, it just didn't matter. It didn't matter. Now it does. We'll see. We'll see if it matters. Mm-hmm. So. so I know you're at the City Paper for a little while, and we had Jack Schaefer Jack. on the podcast. Oh, he's so great. And he was talking about uh, sort of being a manager and editor and recruiting reporters, which is something yeah. you went on to do later mm-hmm. um, and nurtured a lot of great reporters' careers. And I have this quote from from the podcast, and he said, I hired fresh out of college Kara Swisher. Yeah. Kara Swisher I hired basically because she's a dynamo. She's unstoppable, just a force of nature. But it wasn't the right time for her. She didn't embrace stories about conflict. Her writing wasn't particularly good. Her editing wasn't particularly good. And we agreed to part after, I think it was six or eight months. Yeah. But she got right back, right back into the game. And then he sort of described your career yeah. oh, after wow. that. And he says, maybe I should have given care of another few months. Yeah. Maybe I would have been able to harness this dynamo. So you make mistakes. Editors shouldn't be too arrogant. I certainly was. Oh, in that case, that's interesting. He wanted to hire his friend. Okay. <laughs> so... For your spot? Uh, yeah, that's so exactly what happened. You're... And by the way, who the fuck was that guy? Never heard of him again. <laughs> you know, seriously. I don't, John someone. Like, I, I know, Jack, I love Jack. He's really a pain in the ass. But I, you, you did, I was just young, that's all. I just didn't have experience, so what? It was like, he didn't see, he didn't have to, like, help me or lead. You know, he just wanted to hire his friend. I don't know what else to say. But well, it was good. I wasn't experienced enough. But, yeah. you know, it was the city paper, so, like, who cares? <laughs> so, you know, it's not like... And the way I was in college, I was out of Columbia Journal School of Journalism, which was kind of a fine institution, but yeah. okay. Well, so clearly, regardless of the outcome, um, he saw this certain drive that you have. Yeah. And, you know, you can see it in all of your work. Mm-hmm. And because I have a small kid and I'm really interested in nature versus nurture type issues at the moment, is there a time in your life that you believe that derives from when you were younger? Or do you think you were born with that approach to life. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, my dad died when I was five, and people know that pretty well. I think that probably had a lot to do with it. Um, I had a very s- sense from an early time in my life that things were not as safe as they should be. And so I think it gave me a real sense of mortality. I think I did. I was like, I got to hurry up. I think that's probably, if you want to be psychological, or I could just be just obnoxious. That, that's the other part. My mother thinks the second one, that I'm just obnoxious. I was born obnoxious. I was always obnoxious. And so I've used obnoxiousness to good use. I've taken it and channeled it in a way that was financially and professionally successful. So, so. But I think probably the death. I was really aware of it. I'm aware of it all. And then, of course, just five, five years ago, I had a stroke. So that turbocharged me on that issue. Well, I could see that going in the other direction, though, where that could cause you to 
slow down oh, and say, God. I'm, yeah. I'm pushing too hard. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. This is interesting because literally I got back after the stroke and it was actually like, literally, it was like the best stroke you could have. If you were going to have a stroke, I was functional very quickly. I was flying to China. Rupert Murdoch made me ride economy when I could have run business. I blame it all, Rupert Murdoch. Um, I didn't drink uh, water. I didn't walk. And it turned out, literally, I had a hole in my heart. I mean, which many people I've dated have said. But, um, <laughs> but I, I had a hole, and this blood clot went through the hole. And then I, I, I had a little bit of aphasia where I couldn't talk. And I was, oddly enough, I was writing another story about Yahoo's failures. And I was typing, and I kept saying, oh, that, this is such a clusterfuck. And it came out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like... I, I talk to myself when I write sometimes. And so I couldn't speak, and then I had some tingling, and I couldn't eat. There was, but, and I wrote my brother, who's a doctor, and I said, hey, I have these symptoms. This is odd. And he was sleeping in the West Coast. And so it cleared up. I took a shower. I tried to sing the baloney song. La Baloney has a first name. You know that one? What? I, I do know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why. It just popped in my head. I said, if I can sing this, I'm okay. And I don't know why. My baloney has a first name. It's Ois. You know that one. Yeah. So I couldn't sing it. Um, and so it, it, I took a shower, and then I went up to breakfast, if you can believe this. And by the time I got up, there was more like I had uh, dental surgery. So I was like, hi, how you doing? And then it was cleared up. And so I thought, oh, it's just, who knows what it is. And then my brother called me, and he's like, you're having a stroke. And I'm like, you're a terrible doctor. <laughs> you're just not good. Don't scare me like that. And he's like, can you please just go to the hospital? And so I did, because he was so particular about it. And turned out I, had a, I, had, I was having a stroke, and I still was having it. And by that time, the, the blood had gone around the incident. So did that... Did, so did, anyway, oh, back to the actual story. So when I got back... A lot of people were like, oh, now you're going to take it easy. Yeah, slow down. Now that you're going to relax. And I was like, are you kidding me? I could die at any minute now. I've got to <laughs> keep going. And so, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Kara, when you die, you're not going to say, I spent time at work. You'd I'm like, yeah, I love my work. So I'll be upset if I don't spend more time at work. You know, I'm not one of the, I don't have like a drudge, horrible job that I think is terrible. I love my work. It's, I mean, I love my kids and and, and everything else, but I love my work too. And so I wanted to sort of double down on activity, essentially. You know, and, and, and I did. I changed my life in a lot of ways after my stroke. So. Hey, we're going to put Kara and Evan on hold for one moment to give you a word from our sponsor, Mubi. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the scene for you here. You are sitting on your couch. You have... All of these streaming options of the modern world available to you. But if you're anything like me, uh, it's very hard to choose what to watch. Algorithms get, uh, they get a lot of praise, but they're not great for storytelling. They don't really have a business choosing what movie you want to watch. And honestly, when you get all of the movies possible, it's almost impossible to decide. Enter Mubi. It is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce one hand-picked movie and you have a month to watch it. Uh, if you've been enjoying long form, it's a little like long form. We pick four articles a day. If you enjoy our taste, you probably will enjoy our taste next month. Same thing with Mubi. It's not a gazillion choices. They've also got exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews. So it's kind of like a like little boutique film festival in your house I really enjoy it. I've been using it for a while on my Apple TV. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash long form. Again, that's Mubi dot com slash long form. Thank you, Mubi. 
And now back to the Long Form Podcast live with Evan Ratliff and Kara Swisher. So I want to go back and find out when you first became interested in technology as a subject to cover as a reporter. Did you mm-hmm. fall into that or was that something you, you saw as, you know, there's a lot happening here and so I want to be on that beat? Uh, no, I didn't. It wasn't, didn't exist. I mean, there was technology in the effect. There were chips and early computers in the 80s and things like that. And there, they were existed, but it was not, it was not in the mainstream by any stretch. And then I was dating someone who lived in Russia and they, and she showed me how to use um, these message boards that I didn't know about. So I learned those, which was interesting to me. That, that was what first really introduced me into it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. But when I was at Duke uh, University, I was there on a fellowship that Post Reporters did three months and taught a course there. I downloaded a book onto the server. like a, It was like a comic book. I think it was Calvin and Hobbes or something. And I was really struck by that. For some reason, I was very... It was. It struck me really hard, and I said, "What year? What like oh, what year is 90s, roughly? 90, 1990, somewhere. I started covering AOL in '91 or '92. If I, 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 somewhere around there, and I, I remember being. I downloaded a book, and the little geek there was like, "You messed up the server." And I said, "But I downloaded a book." And he said, "You messed up the server." And I said, "But I downloaded a book." And he just was missing my entire genius moment. <laughs> it was like my Einstein moment, where I was like, "You can download a book. Like this is astonishing that you could. That means you don't need a book." And he was like, well, yes, you do. I go, no, you don't. You don't need a book at all. You don't need the paper. You don't need this. And so I, when I went back to the Post, I got very interested in it. And got, I was covering retail at the time or something like that. And I had been interested in retail, how it decimated and changed local retail, how Walmart had written a lot about decimation of, of all the department stores. And so I was very aware of destruction. And so I got really obsessed with it. I drove Don Graham crazy. I kept saying... You know, if this online thing happens, it's going to ruin all newspapers because your your classifieds are terrible, they're static, they're not good. Your subscriptions, why would people buy a newspaper? You know, I, I think what I What kind of response him. did you get on that? Oh, he's so nice. He's like, oh, Kara, <laughs> like that. Like, he's so nice. But he, I mean, later he was on the board of Facebook. He really, he, they've done a great job. But, um, but, they, but they, he, they didn't understand it. I just, and I would put my email at the bottom of news stories and other reporters are like, why would you want to hear from readers? I'm like, that's how it's going to be. They're going to tell you what to think. They're going to like, and so I got really uh, passionate about it in a way and got, was they, the Post signed a deal with AT&T and they signed up and I was, I met AOL, I met Steve Case out in Vienna, Virginia. He was behind a, a car dealership there and I went to meet him because one of the reasons I covered it, the internet online services is because May East is there. A lot of internet provi- the service peer, providers the- yeah, there was PSINet, there was MM, I wrote about them all, I don't remember any of them. But there was a ton of internet service providers there because the hub, one of the hubs of the internet was there. And so what we covered at the Washington Post was government contractors who helped the government, um, which was boring, it was a terrible thing to cover. And I just started meeting all these people who were doing PS. I remember the guy from PSINet was insane, and he locked me in his office and kept saying, you don't understand how important this is. And I was like, I do, let me out of your office. And so, and I met Steve and I met, there were a whole bunches of, one of the guys was a, believed in aliens, they were crazy like they were a bunch of characters and so I got really interested in them and then I, 
I was going to write a book on the Haft family, which was the richest family in Washington. They were billionaires, and they owned a retail empire. And I went around to all these publishers, because I had written about their, they had, they had, there was like King Lear, it was a huge story in Washington. They had this King Lear falling out where the father fired the son. And I was super involved in the story, because I fired the son for the father, because I called him and said, what do you think of your firing? And he was like, what? And I was like, oh, you're fired, <laughs> sorry. Um, and then I told the father, his, the wife was divorcing him. I told the father the son was gay. It was, because it Sounds was- Sounds like a good book. It, it was a good book, but then I went to see John Carp, who's now the head of Simon & Schuster, but he's a, le a lower level editor at the time. And he said, there is nobody in this book proposal I like. They're all villains. And I go, yeah, I know, they really are. And he goes, I don't want to read a book about all villains. What are you doing right now that's interesting? So I started telling him about AOL and all this stuff. And he goes, I'll buy that book. So that's how I sold that book. So I was, he, that's, he was like, that's about the future. And I was like, oh, all right, I'll read the book. So there's a lot of questions I want to ask you a little bit about right. how you do your reporting now and yeah. how you've done reporting in Silicon Valley. But then when you're sort of signed on to cover AOL and mm -hmm. AOL's sort of like this scrappy company that's trying to make it big, mm -hmm. did you feel in any way like your fortunes were hitched to how they did? In other words, I was like not very how, nice to them. How the no, technology I was very did. clear on their accounting. We wrote quite a bit about their issues around yeah. accounting. I wasn't hitched them, but I was fascinated by what they were doing. This on this idea because I still that book thing stuck with me. I was like, this is how everything's going to be. Anything that could be digitized would be digitized. That was in my head right from the start. And I think that's where I did have that insight. And I understood what that meant for newspapers. And I understood what that meant for TV and music. And I saw the links. And even today, we can talk about, about driving. Everyone talks, I'm very obsessed with jobs right now, like where it's going to go and how we're going to manage to have a, a non-jobless economy, given how much stuff is going to be automated. And so it, it's just, it, I just, I think I saw that, that I did see that. And I got just super, I didn't, wasn't hitching it to it, but I didn't want to cover anything else. Like, and they, they wanted me to go to like the White House. That was because I did the, so the, well. Like on, the Post wanted you yeah, to Yeah, they were the like, you're doing so well on retail, now you've done pretty well on this interesting little sidelight, this online services thing. And I was like, and they're, they, they were moving me that. That's what you, where you go at the Post. And so I wanted to cover tech. I just loved it. I was obsessed with it. I got really, I'm not very techy either. I just, the conceptual ideas of what was happening were very interesting to me. And then I met Walt Mossberg doing my book. Well, one thing, one other thing I wanted to, touch on with the book was I was I was reading the, both mm -hmm. your books over the last couple of weeks wow. and what was striking to me was how there's sort of nothing new under the sun no. like the rise and fall of AOL sort of follows this pattern that I feel like yep. you can kind of see happening now do yep. you when you see things like what's happening with Facebook do you register those as recreations of what happened with, in these previous eras? Well, they're a little smarter at Facebook. Okay, let's just be clear. I mean, I think I think Facebook is doing what Facebook has always done. Like, let's just remember, for those who remember, this is the 10th anniversary of Beacon. Do we remember Beacon? I do. Like, they did this, they behaved the same way with Beacon as they're doing today with Russia. They're slow rolling it. They're being very coy. They're trying to play all sides. They're not admitting to anything until they have to. And then they slowly, like, you know, Mark started out, and I like Mark Zuckerberg like a great deal. He started out, no impact. Oh, maybe a little impact. No Russians. Oh, wait, there's a few here. Look, there's more. Oh, why? There's a lot of Russians on our platform. <laughs> like, it was, you know, it just, it, like, they did the same thing with Beacon. It was like, Beacon's a great service and not a privacy-sucking 
way to get money from you. It was like an advertising thing, right? They were selling the data to other No, they would put up what you bought on Facebook to get more social engagement. It was getting more stuff on the... See, Facebook lives through the attention, the slot machine of attention. Like, they've got to keep you going and paying attention. And that's all they do all day. Like, that's all they want is for you to be sucked into their system. And so this was a way to keep people interested. And then there was a big example of the guy who bought a wedding ring and the fiance found out by a post on it automatically posted things if you it was crazy it was crazy but they did it and then they were like oh it's it's perfectly fine it's perfectly fine oh okay it's a little problematic okay maybe it's our irritating okay we're shutting it down like that's how they do stuff at facebook so what they did then is what they do now they their dna is the same it's their same behaviors so that's their particular problem but yes um, so let's go to Walt Mossberg and, and starting the conference. So when you first did All Things D, what was the opening that you saw that you felt like wasn't being done? Same thing. Walt, actually, I interviewed Walt for the book, and he was the only one who shared my thoughts on, the, on the, how this was going to change everything. He was really smart about where it was going. And so we, we had kindred spirits in that regard. And so we, we, I became the only internet reporter at the at the journal, and at the time, everyone thought I was covering. One of the reporters said it was CB Radio, um, and they did. There's someone who's now working for a publication here in Silicon Valley. So I just, I, I worked there. I was the only one covering the internet for a long time, and then more people did, and more people did. And then uh, the crash happened, and then the AOL Time Warner merger happened, and I did the second book uh, about the disaster that the merger was. And then... I was really interested in blogs, and I was trying to convince the Wall Street Journal to do blogs. It was like, put everything into digital, and they wanted to put everything into the Saturday Journal. That was their whole big thing. And I, we, just, we had lots of disagreements, and they didn't want to listen. I was like, we, there was a famous thing I said where I was, they were, in a, they were in one of those focus groups where they said, how should we, how should we get more pe- young people to read the newspaper? That's their favorite little stupid focus group. Um, and so... Uh, and I, my premise is that like people want content. It doesn't matter where it is. If they want to, if they, if people want to print it on salami and eat it, give them that. Like I, you know, it doesn't matter. But they were interested in the medium more than the message, I guess. And so I was always like, oh, you know, tape joints between every page. Like I would put in things like that, or that'll work. Actually, it probably won't. Um, and so they didn't, they didn't appreciate my thoughts. Let's just say. <laughs> Um, and so I was pushing for that, and I was pushing for a blog, and the editor, the publisher of the time didn't even know what it was. And so uh, I really wanted to create a website, and then I saw like things like TechCrunch, which I didn't think had a lot of ethics, so I was like annoyed by that, that we could do a better job. And then the same thing with conferences. So they let us do conferences first because we made money. That's really why, because we could convince them there was a bottom line that we could do. But they didn't want to do that either. They didn't. They were like, they wanted to make them really dull. And we were like, look, all these conferences we go to are so complicit with the sponsors. They do panels, these long, lugubrious panels of white guys that are exhausting. They don't break news. The cookies are bad. Like, everything. Like, you know what I mean? They are. I tasted every cookie at Code. I do. I, like, test the cookies, and they better be good. So anyway, so we, we felt like it was every, the blog and the thing. It was like we felt a lot of the, st- the tech blogs were super complicit and super in the tank, and we could do something different with voice. And I think it was really based on Wall Mossberg, who just retired this past year, um, was that he had a voice, and people loved him because he did great reporting, which we do, 
and he had a voice. He had an opinion at the end of it. And so that was what we loved. That was, because like, why not base your analysis on opinions? And at the journal, when I was a reporter, one thing I hated, 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 and I've talked about this many times before, is the to be sure statement. Do you know that, the line? So we, I was writing about Webman, for example, or one of them, I don't remember. And I said, this is a freaking disaster. And so I would write the story and I would say, this is a disaster. And the editor would always come back and they said, you need an analyst to say that. I'm like, why? I know it is, it's a disaster. And, and then you always have to put in the to be sure. To be sure, some people think Webvan will be fantastic. I'm like, nobody thinks that. Nobody smart thinks well, that. Webvan people think it. Yes, they did. And actually, the idea wasn't the problem. It was the, whole, it was the timing. It was the money. It was the people, whatever. The idea is a, it was still in remains a great idea. Just like what Google Glass did remains a great idea, even though they managed to render everybody sexless by wearing them. But they, it doesn't mean that that's not a good idea. So, so what, what's interesting to me about it is that I hated the to be sure thing. I don't want it to be sure. You don't have to say, you can say, look, I did it with Yahoo. I was like, I know this person. This person's going to be a terrible CEO because of the record that I had been covering for a decade. Like, I don't need it to be sure. And I, I will do more reporting and, and see what that comes of it. And so that's what I didn't like. And I thought, why, do, why don't I just remove that part? But then that gets us to this issue that I'm really interested in, which is how you are able to report on these people, especially these major figures in Silicon Valley, have them at a conference, yeah. grill them, yeah. you know, give them a serious... Uh, we smack them around. Yeah. We do. But what keeps them coming back? What entices someone to participate what in that? What is the thing them? that you're giving them other than hard reporting? You, because yeah. a person from the outside might think the yeah. harder reporting you do, the less access you're going to get to these people. That's not true. That's Why? the lie. Because a couple of things. Mark Andreessen, who's such a jerk. No, I love Mark Andreessen. I don't love him, but I don't love But anyway, we have a long relationship and it's complicated. Um, I do love, I've enjoyed sparring with him over the years, over text and in stage and all kinds of things. He's really super intelligent. He said it was a Stockholm syndrome, which I thought was rude. Um, so <laughs> he's like, and he, he explained it. He's like, she calls you and needles you and then says, oh, I already know. So fuck you. And then I hang up and then you call her back because you think maybe she does know. So it, it, she's playing a mind trick on me. And so you don't know if I know. That's true. Because I often do know. So that's the thing. That's where you have to kind of call me back. Because if you don't get your little say in, I could go off in another direction. So I think I've kind of got them all beat in a lot of ways. And I think they know it. Um, at, at one point, for example, Steve Case, initially he was like really difficult doing the interview for the book and, you know, I'm not going to give you access, I'm not going to do this. And then, so what I did is I interviewed 412 people around him. So I got every story and we were talking in one meeting and, and he was being reticent about something and I said, oh, I don't need you. I already know that. And he goes, oh my God, you don't need me anymore, do you? And I go, no, I do not. And then he started talking. Like, because he knew he was, the jig was up. Like, he had to either participate or just be left behind. So that's, you just, I just interview more people so that I, I, and everyone around it, and then I just, it's impossible not to talk to me. Because if you don't, I know anyway. So, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I do the work, and I think one of the things is that, you know, I just work harder than other people. That's, I really do. I work harder. I interview more people. I call more people. I text more people. And so I, I find out, and they can not talk to me, fine. I know anyway. Like, you can talk to me. I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to give you a chance. I'd like to be fair. I'd like to hear your side of the story. And the most important thing is I think smart people, 
and these are very smart people, like smart questions. They don't like the fawning questions. They don't like being licked up and down all day. Some of the day they like it. But they want someone who, I think in a lot of ways, who knew them before they were billionaires. Because when you're a billionaire, every day you're so smart. How did you do Everyone wants something from you. And I don't want anything from them. I don't, I don't, I don't want a job. I've been offered jobs from all of them. But, so I don't want anything. I mean, you've been in San Francisco, Silicon Valley for so long. There have to be sort of friendships that develop mm -hmm. across, yeah. you know, the reporting Absolutely. boundary. How do you address that? Well, I, I disclose as much as possible, um, obviously. Um, I try not to write about, I mean, I, I, Mark Andreessen is a good example. I like him. He's not my friend. Some, some of them think they're my friend. And I'm, I'm often, I'm sort of use that Joan Didion thing, like, we are not your friends. Like, I have friends. You're not one of them, you know? I think charm is one of the things you use, your charm, and you're like, hey, how you doing? How's your wife? You know, that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think people mistake it, possibly, for friendship. I, I don't know why they would, but people do. And I always say very clearly with people, even people I like, if I have to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Just be clear. And they're like, ha-ha. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll kill you. And they're like, ha-ha. And they go, Okay. <laughs> Just, or maybe they don't believe it until it happens. They want oh, then I'll kill them. Like, it's will. I will. I will kill them. And, so, and they've seen me do it. So I'd say there's a handful of people I've become friends with. And I don't tend to cover them. I tend to not cover them very much. Or, or else I put someone else on it. And you also write for Vanity Fair. Yeah. Not and, in a while, though, because I'm busy. Yeah, not in a while. But there's a new editor there. So yeah. I'm curious about your relationship with Vanity Fair and how that started and your um, relationship with... Graydon Carter and oh, he's a funny guy, isn't he? Um, he he wrote me a note. Um, it was funny. Uh, I, I I don't have a lot of time. Uh, I've been divorced for a while, actually. I've been separated for a while, but I have to go travel to see my kids in D.C. They're there, and and I've got I'm working on a podcast. I'm working on a TV thing right now, and I've got the site and the events. The events are going. Sounds so, like it uh, could give you a stroke. All that. Uh, work. No, not at all. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about my health. <laughs> Just have a drink for me when I die. Uh, so. Um, so anyway, so I, I just, I, I had met some people there, and they had, they had written me a couple times. So Graydon Carter wrote me a note that said, um, I noticed your thing. This was post-Jobs Gates interview, post-Obama interview. You know, I was like, he goes, I've noticed you're a really interesting voice in the tech world. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Like, you're just getting to that? I was, and he goes, and I want to make you a star. And I was like... <laughs> Okay, Graydon. Like he did. He wrote. I, I saved it because it was like I'm gonna make you a star. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of a star right now, but okay, fine. And it made me laugh. And so he, it was in an email, and I wrote, I wrote back, a star, a star. Gee, Mr. Carter, that would be swell. And, so, <laughs> and then he wrote back, oh, I heard you were obnoxious. And I was like, I was like, are you kidding me? Like. It was like as if I was going to, oh my God, Vanity Fair called, but now I'm finally hit the top. Like, I mean, they write about like dissipated royalty and like fucked up celebrity marriages. So. But it's like the post, he still hired you. No, like, he didn't hire me. He just, he, yeah, but I was real like not very nice to him. He's, he's, I, well, so I went in for a meeting with him and we, you know, he's Graydon Carter. He's very like, he's 
he's got the whole thing going on, the whole act. All these assistants, they scurry and they're terrified of him. Like, I don't know what he does when I leave, but they're like, here, Mr. Carter, here, you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, and he also was like, let my assistant talk to your assistant. I was like, well, I don't have an assistant, but you can talk to me. And he had like four assistants. Like, they all do. Like, Ari Emanuel has, Ari Emanuel, what you call him, he has Ari Emanuel Assistant 1, Ari Emanuel Assistant 2, they write you under that email. And so he calls and wants to, so when he used to call, he doesn't call me recently, but when he, when he would write me, he's like obsessive about calling you when he has a question, like he gets on the phone and gets super, like just like you'd think he was. And his assistants get crazy, and so you get a text or an email from Ari Emanuel Assistant 1 or 2, and I never call back, like I'm super slow to call back, and so... They get more and more frantic because you know he's screaming at them somewhere. And so our manual assistant, too, was like, can you please call back? And I was like, until you tell me your name, I refuse to call you back. <laughs> you are not Aria Manual Assistant 2, and you should not be Aria Manual Assistant 2. You should be Joe Smith, or whatever your, the hell your name is. And so they were like, I can't tell you my name. I'm Aria Manual Assistant. Anyway, where did I get off? Anyway, Braden, I went to see him at their whatever, their giant Condé Nast scary towers, dressed somewhat like this. And I really didn't dress. I was... I was being passive-aggressive, or aggressive-aggressive. And so we ended up, he started, did the whole Graydon Carter thing at first, the act. And then we had the best conversation. He, was, he really is so smart and so erudite and really funny. And, he, and the reason I mostly did it is because he did Spy Magazine, and I love Spy Magazine. And the captions in Spy Magazine used to, I love that magazine like crazy. So. Well, I feel like one of, the, one of the lessons that a person could draw from some yeah. of these anecdotes is to sort of like, there's a certain type of obnoxiousness, and mm-hmm. you refer to yourself as obnoxious in a certain way, like that plays because people don't expect that. Yeah. But do you think that that's, how much of that is, uh, it has to be combined with a certain type of charm? Like, witty, yes. Pure obnoxiousness does not play. No, it doesn't. No, 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 definitely. And the New York Magazine is always calling me too, and I'm like, I oh, can't do it. Like, the, it's interesting, the more you refuse them, I mean, at some point the jig will be up for me, and they'll be like, fuck you, Karen. And, like, I'll be old, and they won't, I don't, but I won't care. See, I'll be on Hawaii enjoying myself and learning, taking ukulele lessons. But There's no way you're going to do that. Yes, I could. You're no. wrong. Oh, no, I'm going to disappear one day. You're never going to see me really? again. Yep, that's right. I think I played my career perfectly. So, um, obnoxiousness. Um, so, I think that, I think you have to have a level of charm, and you have to have a level of kindness to people. I think I'm very fair, and I'm not mean. I, I, people use the word mean, but I don't think it's mean. I think it's, I'm tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I'm not unfair. Anyway. I've kind of noticed in interviews where you're interviewed, or on your podcast, mm-hmm. that a real sort of darker view has crept in if it was, mm. maybe it was there all along. But I mean, some of it's very explicit. You refer to Silicon Valley culture as like kids in a playpen, yep. babies, babies, they need to grow up, like yes. all of this sort of thing. And then there's a sort of like toxic bro culture stuff that's in yep. there too. And I'm curious, is that something that you've seen all along and you feel like now is the moment where it will finally be addressed? Or is it something that's crept up on you is uh, this is all worse than it used to be. You know what I mean? No, I do think I wrote about it a lot more than you think. If you go mm. back and look at old articles, like, I wrote about it. I just, I was annoyed by it, but now I'm like, that's enough. Like, you, you know what I mean? Now it's veered into something that has to stop, essentially. And I think there's some point where it's amusing, and I think Uber really did send me over the edge. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I think that, to me, was the quintessence 
uh, and so many reporters did such a good job. Mike Isaac did, Jessica Lessons, the group of the information did great work. All kinds of reporters did amazing work on, on that. And, you know, one thing after another, first a memo that Travis wrote, like essentially, you know, don't grab each other's asses and don't vomit off the roof. Like that, it was like, what? Like you're a company with billions of dollars. Like that, that sort of started to annoy me like a great deal. And then when we wrote a story that with Johanna Buyan and I wrote about the, they had a, fi a medical file on a rape victim from India that they were carrying around and trying to prove that she wasn't raped. I just was like, that's enough. Like, and you know, added to the other reporting and everyone else's work. I just was, I think that probably really bothered me. Like, I think it really was, it just was this sense of entitlement and behavior that I don't find acceptable and I don't think anybody should find acceptable. And it all been excused as boys will be boys, move fast and break things. You know, I mean, that thing, and they're like, they, they put it on big posters, and they do that. They have this ethos of that, and I'm, I'm almost like, okay, you've broken enough things. That's enough. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm sick of the toddler behavior. I'm sick of the excuses that venture capitalists make for them, the endless money and presumption that they're better at the diversity thing. Finally, I was like, they oh, we're trying really hard. You're not trying at all because not, no, not, not, you can do everything else and none of the numbers move. I did a story called 10 years ago called The Men and No Women of Facebook where I just published their pictures next to them. I'm like, look, another white guy. Look at them. You know, we did that. It didn't matter, you know. And then we did The Men and No Women of Web 2.0 boards. And so I think we wrote a piece very early about Twitter's board, which drove me crazy. Like, it was 10 men, white men, and it was literally the best lead I've ever written in my life, which I loved. And because I'm the editor, I could write it. Like, if, it would never get through if there was another editor in charge. But I, it was 10 white men, and the thing was doing badly. Like, they were running it into a wall. And I was pressing them on why they didn't have more people of color or women or diversity or age or whatever. And they were like, well, you know, we have standards. And I was like, I remember that. And I was like wow, you didn't have any when you picked the 10 white guys. Like, obviously, because these people are incompetent. Like, you know what I mean? Same thing with the Uber board. I'm sorry. Like, come on. You enabled this, you know, this enfant terrible to behave the way he did. He didn't do it on his own, like, essentially. And so it drove me crazy. And the best, this lead I did was uh, on the board of Twitter, which has three Peters and a dick. And that was their name. <laughs> and, 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 uh, I love Dick Costello, by the way. He's, he's not a, well, he's kind of a friend. I like Dick Costello a lot. I was like, it's factual, your name, there's a Peter, you know, Peter Fenton, Peter Chernin, whatever the other Peter was, and then Dick Costello. Um, and so it was great. It was kind of, I was so happy. But, and then, so, you know, and then I, I, I'm also interested in the enablers. You know, I've given, I like Ariana Huffington a great deal. It's no secret. She amuses me to no end. But, you know, the enablement of what went on there by this board, and she got there late, by the way or benchmark, like, they're now sort of in high dudgeon. Oh, Travis is the worst. I'm like, he wasn't two years ago. He was the best thing ever two years ago, and you gave him all that money, and you gave him all those rights, and now you're sorry the little, the little monster grew into a big monster. And so like, how, then how significant do you think the kind of reckoning that's coming for this culture is? Is it, is it a blip now, or is, there, is actually some the winds changed against... Well, what's going to happen to them? They're all going to be rich. I mean, what really, what can happen to them? What? Well, government regulation could happen to the companies. Uh, yes. Oh, well. Oh, oh, no. They have to, like, actually behave like other companies? Like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I covered the Microsoft trial for the Washington Post, that, uh, that 
very critical trial for, for Microsoft at least. And, and you saw the change in what happened to it. But you know, I think, no, I, don't, I think they'll maybe, look, government regulation, maybe, but they can't get, look, they can't get tax reform through, they can't get healthcare through. They're really not gonna spend a lot of, they, they can't do anything in that Congress. The tech companies will benefit from the chaos of what's happening. Um, I think the thing I'm most interested in with them is holding their feet to the fire about jobs and their responsibility and their abrogation of responsibility for their platforms. Their platforms, do. I've said this a million times, their platforms are not benign. They're not benign. They affect elections, they affect people's lives, they affect news, they affect the media. They, they have so many reverberations, everything they're doing. And they just are sort of like, well, we just invent it. And I'm like, no, you have responsibility for what happens with AI when it replaces all the jobs. Or someone does, or let's have a discussion about who has that responsibility. I end up in a lot of sort of heated discussions with Facebook. Like one, I got in an argument with when I, we were at an event in Germany, I gave them a hard time on stage about this issue, which now, of course, everyone's talking. I was like, yeah. I was like you're going up before a congressional committee for whatever happened with Russia. I'm, there's something going on there. And they were like, Oh no! What are you? You're being hard on us. And I, uh, I, this guy literally said to me, "Kara, you're being hysterical," which is a thing you say to That's a lady. It's old school, right? Yeah. It's a thing you say to a lady. I was like, "Ding, ding, ding!" I heard that. I hear that. And so, it, you know, it was like really. It wasn't shocking, but it was like not a surprise. Is they, tr they? I don't think they think of themselves as not benign. They think of themselves as world changing, and aren't we the best? And we gave you this um, without the responsibility that they need to exhibit going forward. So that, I mean, that all does sound like fertile ground for journalistic inquiry, yeah. but also is very political and tied in with yes. politics. Yeah. And you have recently, I'm not sure how jokingly, talked about running for office. Mm, we'll see. How serious is that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't you think got I a have whole, to have an answer. Uh, crowd here I don't to, have to uh, have an answer. I'm thinking of it. Yeah, yeah. sure. But, but. But I might not do it. I might do it. But I think that here's what I think of. I was very affected by people that serve their country. I wanted to be in the military. My dad was in the military. I couldn't be in the military because I was gay. I know it sounds crazy, but I really wanted to serve. I'm not sure. I don't want to just yell at politicians and saying, you're bad. I want to know what are the actual creative solutions. And so that's why I'm interested in running. Because like, are there creative solutions? Can we pull in the tech industry? Like in the old days, Wells Fargo or Bank of America, when you were the, the, the company of the town, you contributed to the civic fabric of the society. Tech people do not do that. And so that's my issue. So, and I don't think, I don't want to beat up on them. I don't want to be like, there's so many supervisors like, they're evil. I mean, they're not evil. They have all kinds of money. Let's take their money. Well, I'm going to bring you back to what you do now uh, because it's, it's running something else, which is you've been running Recode. Yeah. And one thing that I had wanted to ask you in the context of starting that and running it, which is why did you sell it? Because mm. I'm smart. Um, <laughs> uh, here's why. We spent a lot of time getting money, and one of the things we did initially when we wanted to get money, well, first of all, we left the journal, because I'll tell you, after Rupert, the Murdoch people hacked that dead girl's phone, that was enough for me. I was the like, British phone hacking yeah, scam. I was like, ew. No, no, no. I don't want to be with these people. You know what I mean? Like, and I had a choice. And Walt and I had choices. And so we entered into negotiations with a lot of different people to get funding. And we got, uh, I think, about 12 million bucks from NBC and, and a group called Windsor Media, which was run by Terry Semmel. Uh, we got the money. And then literally a month and a half after, and that's $12 million is a lot of money, right? Three of our competitors raised 
three times the amount of money we did, three or four times at some point. And it was like, oh no. Like, and they started to try to poach my people for insane salaries that I couldn't possibly keep up with. And then there, the, the, the amount of money it cost to hire a tech reporter suddenly went up. And there was even, even the journal and the Times were paying up. Like, you know what I mean? And that was great, because they don't. Typically, those publications don't. And so it became like, it's, I sort of, again, saw, I'm not going to win here. There's no win. I can't, I have, what I have to do then is go to venture capitalists and get money from them. And Walt and I controlled 66% of the stock. And so that would have meant us not controlling all of it, which was problematic, because then we, you have to make all kinds of compromises. Um, so the future didn't look great to me. So then we were talking to a bunch of people. Um, they came, they approached us, because we're, we're kind of a trophy property for people. And I, I had known Jim Bankoff for a long time, the guy who was the CEO of Vox Media. I love him. He, uh, he was always a highly ethical person. All their properties sort of fit in with ours. And I just felt I wanted to, to change before I had to. You know, I didn't want to be forced to, be, to do a deal that, that would have rendered me powerless. Because I always know if you give up power, like one of the things I'm very interested in is keeping, like one of the reasons I can do what I want is because I'm in charge. Like I can decide we're going to have two reporters on the Ellen Powell trial and report five stories a day. And just to zero back in on that moment where you said, uh, oh my God, we're going to lose because these other people have raised vastly yeah. more money. It gets to a question that a couple people kind of, I was asking people, what do no. they want me to ask you? And they kind of danced around this issue, which I sort of centered in on, like, what does self-doubt look like for Kara Swisher? <laughs> like, does it hit in those moments? Do you no. say, oh, maybe we fucked up? Or no. is it really just... we didn't fuck up. We just didn't... People got crazy, like they do in every... every I've, I've been covering this for a while. I've seen it. Like, you know when these things start to go, and I don't mind shifting. Like, the, the real problem of the things I've followed when I follow entrepreneurs the ones that fail are the ones that do not know when to move when it's time to move. They sit there and they mull and they don't make a decision. I'm willing to, no, we're not doing this and we're going to do this now. And now we're doing this. Like, I don't mind that. And I think that's not self-doubt. It's just being willing to, to just say, that didn't work. We're going to try that. So that's what we do. So is self-doubt not part of your repertoire? No. I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah. Like, I wish I could say that. It's like, I was, was a really well-known publisher. I was with Ariana, actually, at this event. I'm not going to say who it was. And this person said, oh, look, it's Ariana and Kara Swisher. Aren't you special? Which they do to women all the time. Aren't you special? Which is a question you're supposed to say, no, not us. We're not special. Sorry. Thank you for so much for looking at us. Um, and... <laughs> And Ariana, of course, was like, oh, come on, come on, Cara. Yes, we are. You know, you know, like she was trying to like nice him, nice this guy. Like, and I was like having none of it. And I said, you know what? We are fucking special. We're certainly more special than you. And that's why neither of us work for you. And this guy was like, uh. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? Are you going to neg me? I'm like the champion negger. You're not going to neg a negger. And it was, it was literally, it was fascinating. And, and they want you to have that self-doubt. Like, they, like, people do that all the time. Is You know, often, it happens to, women know this, right? You think you're pretty great. I'm like, yes, I am. And I'm much better than you, for sure. Like, and I don't mind saying it. And it's a really interesting um, no, I don't have self-doubt. I think I'm great. Why wouldn't I think I'm great? I have, like, <laughs> no, but, like, but it's not, it's, is it egomania? Do you think it's, because, like, look, I have two great kids. 
you know, I got a divorce, but my ex is fantastic. We along great. I have the most fantastic girlfriend. I'm so talented and great and wonderful, and I have a real nice house. Like, which, what do I have to complain about? I, I can't let you get away without asking, because some people will have seen it about your cameo on the show Silicon Valley. Yeah. First of all, how did that come about? Second of all, did you ever have a moment there where you thought there's any reason why this could be a bad idea? Like that kind of exposure is a different kind of exposure. Yeah. No, being on TV. I'm actually working way. on something with Samantha B right now, which I'm very excited about. Uh. Um, so no, <laughs> no. Um, Can you talk about that? He, well, we're doing. She's working. I can't say what she's doing, but there's. She's doing something around tech, and so uh, I'm going to help her with it. Uh, they were doing the show, and they called me because they wanted to have a verisimilitude of people, and we sat and talked with them about, I did, uh, went down, and they had some plots, and I was like, no, that's not what happened, that would happen, that, you know, I'd be happy to have the meeting. I think it was through Richard Plepler from HBO, I think that's, that's how I got through him. Um, and so, I did it, and I was telling them, like, other, I was linking them with people like Dick and others who I thought had a good sense of humor and would not take themselves too seriously, because a lot of people here do take themselves too seriously. And so, I was doing that, and then they were like, could you come on the show? And I was like, sure, why not? It'd be fun. Like, who, why wouldn't you? Like, hello. Would like... Well, no, I mean, if you knew something about the show, you could think that there would be a risk that you would end up a character, caricature of yourself in some way. So? That they would have some... And? That, and that, that's why my question. Why is that a problem? Like, it's not a problem. I don't take myself that seriously. I, you could easily caricature. I, I didn't need to. I'm just, I am a caricature of myself. No, there's no... I say, I say yes to everything. I'm one of those yes people. Yeah. You ever read that book, Yes Man? It's a really good book. I have not. It's a really interesting concept uh, that you say yes to everything. No matter what people ask you, you go, yes, of course, yes. I don't do this all the time, but it's a really interesting conceptual idea that you say yes more than no. I'm, I'm not one of these San Francisco people who think like this, but it's, a really, it's, it, it's more of a, a thing that we have at Recode that I think they use it at Google and other places. It's the, there's often people who go, yes, but... It's, it's an improv. It's an improv thing, right, Kate? It's an improv thing, right? So there's a yes, but, which is, that ends everything. Yes, but always, and you, but you have to do yes and, or just no, but, um, <laughs> but, to, but yes, yes and is what you should be thinking of. And so when we're with our staff, we often do that. I was starting to ask you before we came on, I just read your last two books, as I was saying, they're great. And Thank they hold you. up, and the they writing do. is lovely. What, Jack, what whatever Jack said. What paragraph did you have? Said. You have a thing. Oh, I'm going to get to that in a second. Right, but first, right. I want to ask you: If you're saying yes to everything, why haven't you written another book? Why aren't you not oh, writing another book? I've been offered a lot of book contracts. Yes, and. Uh, and <laughs> I wrote. Um, I don't want to write a book. I'm not interested. I'm interested in television. I'm interested in podcasting. I'm interested in my children. I, I don't. I don't, want to, I don't want to write a book that nine months later, like, it's, I just don't want to write one. Unless, I, I do have an idea for a book that I think is, I'm not going to tell you, that is really good, that I think would be, it has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. It's a little bit, it's peripheral to what I'm doing right now. And it's called I'll Never Die. And so it's, a, you can imagine what it's about, but it's a really good idea. Um, and then my editor, who did the AOL book, it really is a good idea. Um, it'll sell a lot of books. Um, came to me and he wants, he wanted me to write, and I haven't, said yes to this because I'm not clear what I'd write about, but he wanted me to write a fictional book about Silicon Valley, like just dump it all, like, and then just, just burn it and go, like, remember that? Remember, like, that's veiled and like, you know, instead of Mark Andreessen, it's Sparkman Treason or something like that. Like primary colors for something. Yes, exactly. They want me to write that. And they would hire me a, a fiction writer. That's their scheme. They would hire me a fiction writer to help me because I'm not a fiction writer. And I, I don't know. I just, I don't 
care to tell those stories. I, I don't care. But you know what I mean? Like, you could, but then I'd have to leave, you know? I'd really have to leave. Because really, well, if, then I, you could if go you to did Hawaii. it right, if you did, well, no, yeah, but I'm not ready to go yet. When, maybe I will, but I don't know. Would you think a fiction book about it would be good? Do you think? I don't know. I'm a... Got more cheers for running for mayor. I, I know, say. exactly. I agree. See, but then, so then I was thinking after mayor, I was like, mayor, they'll have to clean up these streets. Why not senator? Why not like just go right to the top, right? Wouldn't I drive them crazy? That's why I'd be good, because I don't care. And I would drive them nuts. I'd be like, listen, Rand Paul, what happened with the lawn? What happened? <laughs> Let's tell all. Like, tell all, like that kind of stuff. And, you know, if Roy Moore showed up, I'd, like, get in a fist fight with him. Like, listen, you. Stop with your food, Corton. <laughs> Just think about it. Think about it. Think it's a really good joke. And the, the end yes, of this is going to be me just walking off and leaving Colbert. you up here with what? a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> I could be a comic. I thought about that, a stand-up comic. I thought about it. All right. I'm going to ask you one more thing. Before, right. I'm going to read a bit from your second book, which is called There Must Be a Pony in Here Somewhere. Yeah, There Must Be a Pony in Here Somewhere. Yeah. It's about a kid digging through a pile of manure, and someone comes up to him and says, what are you, what are you doing? And it was filthy. What are you doing? He goes, there must be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> Which is something that was said at AOL. Yes, because it's just really, because it really is just a pile of shit. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you wrote sort of at the end of that book, uh, it's a little long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's nice. Um, now a decade into it, the interactive arena, as it was called at the time, uh, has matured. It's achieved growth and unprecedented scale. It's changed the way we work and play. It is also now a pillar of our economy rather than a quirky little sector consisting of a few small companies. Yet I wish sometimes that I could go back to those very first days when I started covering the internet, when money didn't matter, when the whiff of ideas was fresh, when words like multiple revenue streams and network effect didn't exist. I realize, of course, that this kind of past was pure sighing makes me sound like a bit of a dope. But I am a bit of a dope when it comes to watching that kind of mutations that developed around the internet. It's a place that still amazes me with its ability to resist the pressures that have made most forms of media a kind of dead zone of ever-diminishing expectations. Hmm. Do you still feel that? Did I, say, did I write that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's pretty good. You right out of the book. Wow. Um, I do you still feel none that of it. amazement? Uh, yes, I do. I do. I'm really excited by stuff. I'm excited by VR and AR. I think it's really interesting. I'm excited by the idea of embedding stuff in our heads. I'm, fa you know, I'm fascinated by um, self-driving. You know, cars are going to be like having a car is going to be like owning a horse. It just no one's going to. It's like, oh, I have a, I have a car out at my ranch, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm really interested in where things are going with uh, life extension and uh, food and the really big stuff. I think there's some really healthcare. Um, there could be really wonderful effects of what's happening, or we could end up in this sort of dystopian situation where you, where you don't have control of these platforms or they control you. And so I think it's, every time I see something really wonderful and realize how much it's changed people's lives or it could change people's lives, I get excited about it. So your optimism still exists? Well, despite the no, I'm not an optimist. State. Do you think I'm an optimist? No. I, I think there are optimistic optimists. There are pessimistic optimists. Okay. There are pessimistic pessimists. You don't want to talk to them. They're really unpleasant. <laughs> and then there are optimistic pessimists. That's what I am. I think it's all going to go to shit, but I'm hoping for better. Does that make sense? Yes. You know what I mean? Ladies and gentlemen, Kara Swisher. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast Live. I want to especially thank Kara Swisha for coming on the show, not just for coming on the show, but for being the best possible live guest. She was fantastic. I also wanted to thank the folks at Pop-Up Magazine and California Sunday Magazine who co-produced this show and without whom it definitely would not have been possible, particularly Lauren Smith, also Doug McGray, Emily Shapiro, all the producers at Pop-Up Magazine and the folks at California Sunday. If you get a chance to see a pop-up show when it comes to your town, do it and pick up a copy of California Sunday. It's a fantastic magazine. On our end, the editor this week is Courtney Harrell and our intern is Angela Velez. And our sponsors were Findaway Voices, Movie.com, and, of course, MailChimp. We will see you next week. Don't forget that this show was brought to you by Movie, where algorithms are not used, and instead, curation is used to help pair you with exceptional films from around the globe. There's a new one every day, and you have a month to watch it. They've got exclusive interviews and all kinds of stuff for all you film fans out there. Again, mubi.com slash longform. You will get a 30-day free trial as a listener to the show. Again, mubi.com slash longform. Thanks, Mubi. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.